This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Southern Seminary. The pastors of tomorrow won't need less theological training. They'll need more. That's why Southern exists, to provide deep, rich, and strong ministry preparation that endures. Southern Seminary, trusted for truth. Learn more at sbts.edu. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. God gives you the grace when you need it, and not always before. That's something Matt Chandler has learned over the past 17 years of pastoring the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. He learned it by watching Christians in his church suffer. According to Matt, quote, I learned from listening to and praying with and watching my brothers and sisters that in the day of trouble, God will be there. That doesn't mean the day of trouble is not a day of trouble. It really is a day of trouble, and that's where he meets us, end quote. Matt and Lauren Chandler's own day of trouble came in 2009 when on Thanksgiving Day, Matt collapsed from a malignant brain tumor and was given two to three years to live. In spite of that diagnosis, Matt is healthy today and he joins me on the Gospel Coalition podcast to talk about his own experience of suffering, which he tells in a new book, Joy in the Sorrow, How a Thriving Church and Its Pastor Learned to Suffer Well. Along with Matt and Lauren's story, the book includes nine other stories of suffering and joy told by members and former members of the Village Church. Matt, thank you for joining me again on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Man, it's good to be back. It's been a long time. I know. Too long. Too long. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. I mean, it's difficult stuff, but I've learned a lot watching you in this process, Matt, and eager for others to do the same in this interview and then also in the book. You, but you, you started what you call a deep dive into the Bible on the subject of suffering well before you got a brain tumor. This isn't something that just followed that. But I'm wondering, Matt, what propelled you to seek out and study suffering? Well, you, it, it was in a season of uh, the the life of the village church where it was mainly weddings and not a lot of funerals. Um, and then there was this wave um, uh, around the second year I was here. There was this wave of, um, yeah, just heartbreak, whether that be um, cancer. And I'm, I'm thinking cancer in a, a, a young child here. That story's not in the book. Uh, there was the death of a very young, very vibrant, very godly young man in a 
random and wild fishing accident on a lake, uh, leaving a, um, uh, um, a wife with a six week old son. I mean, they, these things started happening everywhere. And there was one in particular where I went to the hospital, um, and, and a woman named Dottie, who was the grandmother, this story's not in the book either, was a grandmother, um, of a child that had some, uh, degenerative disorders and was in ICU and it was not looking good. And she just kind of collapsed into my arms and, and it occurred to me while we were talking and praying in, in the waiting room outside of uh, the ICU that, that people had not been given, and, and maybe, maybe it's broader than the village church at that time. Maybe, maybe it, it, it's not. I think it is, which, which is the purpose of the book and, and why we chose to, to suffer publicly rather than privately, the, um, that we are ill-prepared theologically to understand suffering. Um, and, and the errors tend to be people have an over-realized eschatology or an under-realized eschatology. Uh, and when you, when you err in either one of those directions, it actually adds, um, a, a greater burden to the suffering itself. Uh, and so what I wanted to do is be able to explain to a congregation that was predominantly in its twenties, um, what it looked like to live in a fallen world with a joy um, that, that God is sovereign and that he can be trusted and that difficult days are coming for us, that nobody gets out of this life unscathed, that eventually, like some of the lines I would always say in those early days were like, like, like everyone in this room, your life can be altered with the ringing of your phone. Well, like that's just how fragile we are. And I would make some, I was trying to lighten it a little bit by saying like the great theologian Sting said, <laughs> and then quote fragile. So it, you, th that was what was happening that, that had this extremely young congregation and these tragic things were occurring and there didn't seem to be any kind of theological mooring for it. There were just people that, you know, would err on the side of an overrealized eschatology and, and say things that just aren't true. And then on the other side, there were those that had this underrealized eschatology, and and they would say things that were incomplete. Um, and so I, I thought, man, to prepare us well, if I'm if I'm the pastor here for the next forty years, to prepare us well for what is surely coming, we need to have this conversation pretty frequently in this season. Hmm. Uh, do you and Lauren ever regret choosing to suffer publicly as opposed to privately? No, and and man, I'll. This is an opportunity for me to just. I was I was super anxious about it because they were messing. It, what my story was brain cancer, and when before we had surgery, you know, we had to listen to this long list of things that could happen in ways that I could wake up, and um, you know, right hemisphere silent, right you know, right frontal lobes the silent hemisphere, and one of the things that can be affected is spatial reasoning. Mm. Um, so the ability to look at a subject from varying angles and then make a, you know, bring it to a conclusion. And so, and that, that's pretty terrible. That, that's literally all I can do is spatial. I don't have <laughs> any other skills, but spatial reasoning. Uh, and so that's a pretty terrifying moment, but I was concerned that I might say something crazy. Uh, I was, uh, that I might say something disparaging about Jesus or despair. I mean, I just was anxious about my capacity to reason coming out of the surgery. And so I, I was kind of trying to contend with Lauren to not do that. And she just, the way she does, she just lovingly just said, Hey, you, you have, you have been very public in clearly the Lord's anointing and touch on your life. 
And so I, I think you should trust him also with, with this season of suffering. You, we can't just be in the limelight when everything you're touching turns to gold. I, th- I think we also have an opportunity here to make much of Jesus in a time where most people would would circle the wagons and choose not to do that. And not that there would have been anything wrong had we circled the wagons. And just because this also brought about a season where people were saying really crazy things to us. Hmm. And I think I have every cancer book written (laughs) that year and the previous decade. And I've got (laughs) hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of someone's aunt who drank, you know, seven gallons of flaxseed oil and rubbed (laughs) one of the essential oils on the bottom of her feet and, you know, has, is never going to die that literally a chariot (laughs) came down with Elijah and and took her up into glory and then brought her back so she could be with her family forever. (laughs) And so that, that's the kind of stuff that happens when you're sick is that people are well-meaning. They're, they're generous. They're trying to minister to you. But another thing that, that really helps when you talk about suffering is you help other people know how to address those who are suffering. Um, and I think that theme kind of comes up in the book where there are these hurts that happen from well-meaning people who are trying to encourage, but it comes off as cold or it comes off as disconnected. Um, and people just don't know what to do. And so, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with circling the wagons, but just for us, we just felt like specifically my wife pressed me to, Hey, let's, let's let the Lord shine his grace and, and, and saying that when, when we didn't know which direction we was going. In fact, everything we heard at that point was bad yeah, news. Right. Well, you often hear, Matt, people talk about the problem of suffering or the problem of evil for Christianity. Yeah. But as you think about that more, you realize that evil and suffering and brain cancer, it doesn't choose you because you're a Christian. It doesn't choose you because you're white or black or where you're born or how much money you have. Like, this is just something that happens to everyone or of all different types, not just brain cancer, but ultimately evil and suffering and finally death. So there's actually a corresponding problem of good of why do we expect anything else and the hope that Christianity gives that nothing else gives. I'm wondering how did that experience change any of the way that you, I don't know, teach apologetically or evangelize or just kind of talk about these difficulties in in light of the hope that we have in Christ for eternity. Yeah, well, it's not just Christianity that has a problem with evil and suffering, right? It, it's it, it's secularism has just as big of a problem with evil and suffering, right? If if we are progressing to utopia, then then secularism, man, it really breaks down. I would say I would argue it breaks down far more quickly than than say our belief that that a sovereign God who's outside of time is working all things. Uh, for his glory and our good, and and that there are certainly aspects of that we're not going to see and understand, but we can look to the cross and we can see that he's for us and not against us, and that we can have hope that that what we're enduring is not punitive, but God is accomplishing something. Where where I I just the secularist their head has to be spinning at why we haven't reached utopia. And remember, World War I was the war to end all wars, right? And then there was World War II, and then World War II was the war to end all wars. And we came up with the United Nations, and the United Nations was going to stop the madness from happening. And, and just at every turn, this has not happened. So evil and suffering is just as much of a problem for the secular world. In fact, I would argue more of a problem for them, uh, because we've got, we've got some answers by which we're going to approach suffering that that at least fit into a worldview that acknowledges the world is broken, 
there is hope in that brokenness. Doesn't mean it's always going to go easy. Doesn't mean we're always going to understand. But there is a hope that we possess. And uh, I think the way I talk about that in the book is a thick piece. That there's a thick piece that we walk in as believers in Christ. If, and this is a big if, if um, by the grace of God, we we at least have some um, categories for what's going on. And this is where I think the prosperity gospel can be so devastating and that over-realized eschatology can be so devastating because it doesn't leave any space um, for someone to die or for someone to to get cancer and then ultimately die of that cancer without putting a weight on them that the Word of God does not put on them. And I think it would be the greatest scientific breakthrough of our generation if for, if somehow we found out tomorrow we got we saw that alert on our smartphones that brain cancer had been cured. It would oh, be amen. amazing, and it would be wonderful, and we'd rejoice in that, and we'd praise the, the scientists, and we'd give thanks to God, and then, Matt, we'd, we'd, we'd die of something else. That's right. Yeah, maybe well, it would absolutely. Have... And that's already proven, because they have cured forms of cancer that right. 50 years ago— it was a death sentence, and there are types of leukemia now. They can give you a suppressant pill that you take every day, and and it just suppresses the leukemia. So we really have had these massive breakthroughs. But there's a book. It's not a Christian book. Uh, it's called The Emperor of Maladies. Uh, and it just – it doesn't know that it's doing this, but it's just confirming what Christians believe about the fall, um, that there's a rebellion inside of us, that there is there – is brokenness that will lead to death at the cellular level. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm, we, yes. <laughs> well, I, I it, that's the thing about utopia. And even, I, I'm not sure exactly how those benefits are supposed to accrue to somebody who denies the existence of eternity or denies yeah. the existence of that hope or denies the existence of judgment or something like that. There's just, there's not a way out of that. You can, like that suppressant for leukemia, you can merely suppress that truth like we see in Romans 1. You can suppress the truth of, of what this fallen world is telling us about not only the goodness of God, but also the reality of sin. But you can't make that go away. I mean, I, I think, uh, I've thought about this often. I was talking with an with a church elder. He was having to discipline a man in his church, but it was a tragic situation because this man had suffered Job-like in his uh. life, but finally he had renounced his faith. And I just, it was, and, and led his family away from the Lord and all that sort of stuff. And I just kept thinking, but he didn't suffer because he was a Christian. Like his belief yeah. didn't, didn't, this wasn't like he was being persecuted or something. Yeah. Um, and now where does he think he's going to find hope? All he's done is committed a kind of spiritual suicide. Yeah. Uh, there's, but but he, there's no benefit that comes from that. But you talk in the book, Matt, about how God uses suffering to reveal our sin, one of many different things that he does with that. But I want you to tell yeah. tell people here about the time when you came home from the hospital oh, and oh. a Christmas card sent you oh, into a tailspin yeah. of anger. What, what did you see God doing during that time? Well, I— in, in reality, I, I think at any given moment, by the grace of God, I'm trying to be aware of my sinfulness, aware of what's going on in my heart, and ask the Lord to, to work, to forgive, to heal, to grow me. To I, I mean, that's just an ongoing process. And, and yet, the, the brain cancer in particular, in fact, more than anything else in my life as a 45-year-old man, revealed some nooks and crannies in me that I did not know was there, some self-righteousness I did not know was there even though I feel like I was saying the right things. 
so right after I, um, right after I was diagnosed, one of the things I tweeted out was why not me? Yeah. Uh, right. Because there were just well-meaning people that were just like, well, there's no, I mean, man, the church needs you. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, no. Like the, the man goes in the ground and the message moves on. And, and if I die within two years, no one will think twice about it because the message is going to move on and God raises up men and women in every generation. And, and so, so I knew that I knew why not me, but then I come home and, uh, I'm, I'd finished a radiation treatment and, and got, and I'm, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm feeling a little bit more thin, a little bit more fragile than normal. And I sit on our couch and around our mantle are all of these Christmas cards with these families on it. And uh, when you're a pastor of a large church, I mean, you, there are a lot of those. <laughs> and, um, and so there was one in particular. And, and I remember th this family, just like what you would think of, of a wealthy suburban family, just smiling, beautiful. Um, and, and the, the man or the husband in that family, uh, kind of a perpetual adulterer, um, crushing uh, on the the souls of his daughters in regard to berating them for their appearance at times for, uh, I mean, just a really wicked man. And I just remember, I mean, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I was thinking, really, God, me, like this guy right now, he's about to enjoy Christmas. He's about to, and I'm wondering if this is my last one, this guy's going to get to walk down the aisle with his daughters. I'm probably not. I mean, I just, and it was, it was a kind of rage that I didn't know was in me and a kind of self-righteousness I didn't know was in me. And, and by the grace of God, I, he, I, I came to my senses quickly. I just think the spirit was just really merciful to let me see if this makes sense. Let me see what I was thinking and, and let me understand what's going on in me. And then I was, I was quick to repent, uh, to the Lord. I've never told that this family, that that was my thoughts. But, uh, and, and I think I tell it in such a way that, that even if they heard this, um, they, they wouldn't know that, that I was speaking of them. Uh, and, and so that, that was that moment where there was this, there was this bit of self-righteousness in me where, where, um, I, I shifted into it in an aggressive way that I don't think I, ever would have even known was in me if it wasn't for the suffering. Now, I want to be careful there because uh, the Lord can bring that to my attention a billion ways, all right? It was just how he brought it to my attention in this season. And that's one of multiple stories I could tell you about uh, in these little, like I said, in these nooks and crannies of my soul, these things that would come out um, uh, about what I believed about God, about what I, that he just refined in that season. Hmm. Well, you talked about all the different crazy things that you heard from people. And I would imagine most of that being about how you would be healed and, you know, prophecy about how you would be healed and, and things like that. But I don't know if you experienced this, but a lot of people, a lot of times you see this in Job, especially people believe that our suffering must be caused by a yeah. specific sin. But I'm wondering, what's the difference between that and then recognizing that suffering can actually help us to repent of our sin? Yeah, and, th and this is what I was alluding to earlier, that um, that people can have an over-realized or an under-realized eschatology around suffering in particular. Um, and and so what, what, what we know as believers in Christ because of the Word is, is that we as Christians are not under wrath, but we're under mercy. 
Uh, and so the wrath of God is not going to be poured out on us, although we do have to acknowledge that there are times that we are disciplined as his sons. But but I've always taken that. I think if you dig into the text, I, I don't think that discipline is is probably what you and I think about. It's kind of your classic get in the corner or let me give you a spanking kind of discipline, but a long term shaping of our lives to look more and more like Jesus. I think that better fits the Hebrews context where that passage is found. Um, so under mercy and not under wrath, suffering then is used according to the Bible as a purifier, uh, as something that that um, draws us near to the Lord and has us understand that he is drawing near to us. It, it is used to mature and build. It is used in those ways, but it, but it is not punishment for the Christian. And so I, I think when I, when we talk about suffering, what I want to do is have a doctrinal conversation. I want to talk about what the Bible says. Um, and, and so those are the things that the Bible would say in regards to, is it, are you being punished because you didn't consistently wake up early and spend time in the Bible or because you um, did this or did this? Or is God up to something bigger and some of what he is up to is in helping you mature, helping you see, helping you grow and and creating in you steadfastness? Yeah, that sounds more consistent with the testimony of the Psalms. Yeah, very, very much so. And at the end of Job, the yeah. final friend. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a here's a statement you hear fairly often, especially in certain circles. Quote, Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I think the the quick way is to dive into the New Testament and and look at the stoning of Stephen. Look at I, I mean, I just don't know how you say that sentence. I even even something as simple as Timothy um, needing to take wine for his stomach, coming from the Apostle Paul, who's, I mean, handkerchief and apron healed people. Yeah. So, so there's obviously throughout the New Testament uh, suffering of various kinds, uh, and sometimes that's um, a bad stomach, uh, some kind of digestive issue or anxiety issue that Timothy has, and, and sometimes it, it's the very real suffering of being in prison, having your stuff plundered. Um, being boiled alive, being crucified upside down. And, and these realities exist throughout Christian history. So you've got the biblical witness, and then you've got the historical witness that although Christ has suffered to ultimately alleviate my suffering, he has also suffered and died to bring me a resurrection body. And I am certainly not in my resurrected body right now. And if I am, I am uber disappointed. <laughs> I just thought I'd have better abs in this in this body. Why do you think that's appealing? I I guess is it the is it the sense that you know when somebody says that within the church that they're so cut off from Christian history that they just they don't they don't care they think no this is a new era because we have new prophets with new messages who have finally realized I, I this. I just don't know because I think in that stream a lot of those things also exist the kind of new idea new prophets new words new and and I'm a I mean I'm a reformed charismatic so I'm certainly not in any way trying to disparage um, th those things in fact I get myself in trouble quite a bit by saying that those things uh, are biblical and good and right and. So, but, but I do find that there's a kind of, and that's why I keep just going back to over-realized eschatology. I, I think there is an ignorance of church history, but I also think there's a way 
that we cherry pick verses out of the Bible, don't understand that the Bible is a single story and not a bunch of stories. And so when you pull two sentences out and try to form a doctrine around it or form a, you know, a theological idea around it, then, man, you're, you're more than likely going to do greater harm than good. But if we can read it in its context and we can read it in the, the kind of narrative of the scriptures, uh, what God is doing in saving a people and making them a kingdom of priests and making them holy by the life, death and resurrection of the son of God who comes as Jesus Christ. And like if you get outside of that story and you cherry pick verses, you, you can really create whatever you think people want to hear. Um, and, and I think well-meaning brothers and sisters who want to try to bring hope in very, very, if you get the book, I just promise you, there'll be points of the book where you just can't not weep. Um, and, and in that really dark moment, the impulse is let me bring hope when really you should bring presence. Um, not presence, like, let me give you, (laughs) let me be here with you. This is unbelievably awful. Can I just sit with you? Um, and, and instead we, we've got these little taglines. We've got these, these kind of fake promises, um, that, that might happen. Breakthrough might happen. God might heal. Uh, in fact, I would even argue that the Bible commands us to ask for him to do it and then expect for him to do it while holding our hands open to the reality that he is the sovereign king of glory and, and, and his will will be done. But he has asked us in scripture to have elders pray, to cry out for healing, and then to expect that he will. And, and then if, if he doesn't, we've got an open hand and, and we trust that he's good and kind and he's accomplishing something that's beyond our understanding. Just a couple more questions here with Matt Chandler talking about his new book, Joy in the Sorrow, How a Thriving Church and Its Pastor Learned to Suffer Well. Matt, we've, uh, we've talked a lot especially about the overrealized eschatology, but I want to give you a chance to talk about a little bit more of that under-realized. We, we do worship a, a risen Christ who made yeah. healing a regular part of his earthly ministry. Now, we know that there are those dynamics. You, you talk about over and under-realized eschatology. We can also talk about the already not yet of the kingdom. It's already yeah. come in Christ, but not yet fully realized until his return. How does that affect your kind of view of, of suffering and, and healing, and maybe talk especially to those people who don't quite expect that healing to happen in their lives. Yeah, well, and and that's where I think you do, and rightly said, I, I think that's exactly where you get into this under-realized eschatology, where um, all you've got is the will of God, right? So whatever the will of God is, that's what's going to happen. Don't even worry about it. Just ride it out. And I want to just affirm, affirm, affirm the sovereignty of God, the will of God, the might of God. But I don't want to get so far away from how he's revealed himself to us in Scripture that that, that becomes our default posture when we're suffering. Um, because our default posture is we are confident that the will of God is going to be done. We find a lot of joy in that. We find a lot of comfort in that. And then I, I'm just, I would argue from James, from other portions of scripture, that then we cry out for healing and then we expect with an open handedness that understands that sovereignty. And so to, to be this kind of passive, well, I mean, it, I think it does great harm to people who suffer and who want to be healed to throw a little bit of shade, whether spoken or unspoken, 
that that desire is somehow ungodly. We certainly don't see David praying like that in the Psalms. We certainly don't see Paul praying like that in the New Testament. I mean, three times he's pleading with God, take this thorn from me, take this thorn from me. And Paul is expectant until he hears from the Lord, no, my strength is going to be enough. But but notice that Paul contends three times and he doesn't seem to be embarrassed or feel like he needs to repent of the fact that he's perplexed but not crushed. And so I think when we just kind of say, no, hey, listen, don't be careful of boldly praying like that. Be careful of expectations. Be careful of of really believing that God's going to heal you. You just need to trust that his will is going to be done. And no one says those exact words, but they do try to couch people's expectations. Um, And I think that can do just as much harm. Uh, I, I want us to believe together. I want us to ask for the gift of faith while we're praying and expect God to heal while always having our hands wide open and believing that God is sovereign and good and he can be trusted with this outcome. And and that's, I think, the tension that the Bible leads us into where I think it's easier for people to choose one or the other of those rather than standing in the middle and going, I know God's will will be done. He is sovereign. He is good. But I can see in James, I can see in Paul, I can see that I am too right now let my want be known and to plead and to believe by faith that he can heal me. And then I'm going to with open handedness contend that he would do just that until he makes it clear that he's got other things planned for me. So Matt, your story of suffering, just one of nine in this book, all of them written by members or former members of the Village Church. But I want to give you in this last question a chance to share a little bit about another story that especially stands out to you. Well, I think of all the chapters, there are two in particular without, I mean, being real careful with all of these stories, they're all really dear to me. That's why they're the ones in the book. But uh, the two that really struck me uh, in pretty powerful ways were Kyle Porter and his wife with the loss of their daughter, Kate, uh, and then Tadashi and Danielle with the loss of their son. Uh, And maybe those are because we're we're talking about children, but gosh, man, I, I ugly cried when guys wife died. I mean, I just was like, Lord, what are you doing? So probably like I was in Orlando when I heard that Kate, um, baby Kate had, had died. And I, I knew Kyle and his bride were so excited to add a third, uh, to their family. Um, and then the way they responded, uh, I I don't know if you read his blog, I think TGC picked it up, Mm -hmm. uh, but he wrote a blog and man, I was in the Orlando airport. I just finished speaking at a conference in Orlando. And I mean, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom or, and, or someone's going to come and, and yeah. check them. They're going to send security over to see me. I mean, it was just everything that we had tried to teach, that we had prayed that God would put in the heart of our people. They were all there. Um, and, and man, I just wept for them and was um, heartbroken for them. And then man, uh, with Tadashi and Danielle, um, we, we knew, we knew that their son had passed away and Tadashi was on a plane. Uh, mm. and so news was starting to get out mm. that, that this had happened and Tadashi didn't know yet. And so I was just terrified that he was going to land and turn on his phone and have 40 messages about how everybody was praying for him and have no idea Oof. what, what people were talking about. And, and so I think Tadashi and Danielle's stick out for two reasons. One because of how anxious I was for T. Dot um, to find out about the death of his son 
via people who didn't know that he didn't know yet. Um, and then secondly, that celebration service, that celebration service, man, I, I think of all the spaces I've been able to be as a pastor, that celebration service was unbelievable and just rejoicing in the year that they've got with him, um, clinging to one another, clinging to the promises of God in Christ. Uh, I, I just thought, man, it was incredible. Well, for more stories like that um, and more of what we've been talking about here, we encourage you to pick up Matt Chandler's new book, Joy in the Sorrow, How a Thriving Church and Its Pastor Learned to Suffer Well. Matt, thank you for setting us an example in that, and thanks for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Uh, It's my pleasure, Colin. Thank you. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.